I don't I don't think either of us are in shape to go live for this one, so we'll just skip that. <laughs> At one point I thought, oh, we could just stream live to our Facebook page for this. Maybe not. I mean, we could, but probably not <laughs> the best of ideas right now. We, pity, we, we look like death. Welcome to our podcast. I feel like it. <laughs> and speaking of welcome to our podcast, <laughs> I completely skipped over that part today. Hello, welcome to the Michigan Murders. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. Welcome back to the chaos. We forgot how to podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a little true. I think that's a little true. We got so busy. So busy. I went on two trips in a row. And then I went on a work trip another week. And so I haven't been around. I've just been going nonstop and then my love seat decided to jump out and attack me when I least expected it <laughs> and I broke my toe it just jumped right out huh yeah it, it was mean and disrespected me it called me ugly and broke my toe I don't understand it's just rude well I think that means you need to drag it outside and light it on fire that's what I think meet me outside how about a Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, well, for today, I have the murder of Tara Lynn Grant. Tara Lynn was born on June 28, 1972, and had a sister named Alicia. She graduated from Michigan State University with a bachelor's in business. Soon after, she started working for the downtown Detroit office of Washington Group International. She married Stephen Grant who is also from Macomb County, and they ended up having two children together, one girl and one boy. By 2007, she was the principal wage earner, and all the while, Stephen worked at a tool and die shop while also caring for the children. Although, I should note that they did also have a 19-year-old au pair from Germany, Verena Dierks. Sorry, I'm not sure. In 2007, on Valentine's Day, of all days, Stephen called the Macomb County Sheriff's Office to report that his wife, Tara Lynn, had been missing for five days. That's a long time to wait. Right. Why in the world would it take this long to report if he had nothing to do with it? Well, according to Stephen, this was not the first time that Tara Lynn supposedly left, which is why... Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm. Side eye. Right. He recounted that on the night of February 9, he heard her talking to someone on the phone saying, I'll meet you at the end of the driveway. And he also mentioned that he witnessed her getting inside of a dark colored car and then they rode off and that he hadn't seen or heard from her since that night. Hmm. <sighs> a little too convenient. In the subsequent, I can't even talk. In the subsequent weeks, Stephen Grant made multiple media appearances. Surprise, surprise. And that is where he especially enjoyed accusing the police of harassment. Oh boy. (laughs) See, yeah. See, the day after he had reported his wife missing, he was stopped and arrested for driving on a suspended license. 
So, of course, he used this to accuse the police of using this arrest as an excuse to bring him in so that they could question him further about his wife's, uh, wife's disappearance because... That wasn't his fault at all that he was driving on a suspended license, obviously. No, 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 no. No, no. You're accusing me. Yeah. <laughs> Sir, get a fucking license. You think I did it. Now I do. <laughs> like, now now I do, sir. When now you're connecting the two, yeah, a little bit. Just, just a little bit. Obviously, the police denied this, and they continued to hold daily press conferences while they were searching for Tara. From what officials have stated, Stephen Grant was not cooperative at all with them during the early times of their investigation. Shocker. And that he initially refused to answer questions, but for some reason agreed to a polygraph. But only as long as it was administered by someone who is not part of the police. Because. I, I just don't get skipping over questions going straight to polygraph like why even offer polygraph as an option because you don't have to talk to police there's nothing saying you know you have to but skipping that going to polygraph is a weird choice but only as it's not one of you guys doing it. yeah why do the police make you nervous sir why is that on march 2nd of 2007 the police completed a search warrant at the home of Stira, uh, Stephen and Tara in Washington Township, Michigan. Shockingly, they found a dismembered human torso. What? Believed what? to be that. Yeah. 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 Believed to be that of Tara Lynn. And that had been found stored in plastic garbage bag in the garage. Ew. Right. At least by they a freezer. You would think. I mean. Get a smell be, being out there in the open. You know. Especially this is March 2nd. She went missing. What? February 9th. You. Almost a month. I digress. They immediately gained an open murder arrest warrant for Stephen. Who had already fled the scene. Oh, of course. This guy. He he's really he's really something because two days later. After tracking a cell phone call that he had made to his sister, Griem, I think is how you pronounce it, police found the slime ball 225 miles away in northern Michigan's Wilderness State Park. He had taken alcohol and pills from his sister's house with the full intention of committing suicide. This didn't have the follow through? Just because, you know, they were doing a... A warrant to search. You know what they're going to find. Run. Where were they? Does it say where the kids were during all this? Is that coming up or? They mention it during what happened to her when she had died. Ah. But not like during this. That that is a good question. (laughs) And one I would love to know. Yeah. To be honest. He had... Like I had said, he had taken alcohol and pills from his sister's house. And after driving to the park, he spent the night in the freezing cold with no outer clothing whatsoever for protection. So, like, no jacket, no hat, no nothing. He was trying to, like, freeze himself to death. 
But if you're drinking, I don't know how to tell you this, sir, that kind of warms your blood up. Well, I'd say it, well, it thins your blood. So you feel warmer. That's why some people will go out and like be drunk during a snowstorm and then go outside and then they fall asleep and then die. But it must not have been cold enough for that for him. Unfortunately. (sighs) Sorry for the yawns, folks. It's nighttime. I'm very tired. (laughs) I'm very exhausted. It's nighttime on a Friday. So like the party animals we are, we're recording a (laughs) podcast. It's not even nine o'clock yet. And I'm already (laughs) like, where do I go to sleep? Honestly, same. I thought about getting a drink, but instead I have Sunny D. So, you know. (laughs) Real party animals. Wild. After being taken into custody, he was subsequently airlifted to Northern Michigan Hospital in Petoskey for the treatment of hypothermia. Because, shocker, being outside all night in the freezing cold with nothing on you, you're going to catch hypothermia there, buddy. Yeah. I mean, if he was a month earlier, (laughs) probably wouldn't have had to worry about it. Then he he would have just died. Right. It would have been much easier for everybody. (laughs) In a press conference on the 5th of March, Mark Hackle, the sheriff of Macomb County, commented on a confession that Grant had made to them while he was in a hospital. He confessed, in detail, to strangling his wife Tara to death, On that February 9th night, after an argument in which he had accused her of spending too much time with a co-worker, she had come home that day from a business trip in Puerto Rico, and their two children were at home when this occurred, but he said that they had been asleep in bed. But during everything else, where were the kids? Again, Wikipedia did not want to tell me that. They just glossed over the children. Stephen later dismembered her body at his father's tool and die shop, USG Babbitt. He then took the parts. Yeah. (laughs) So confused. Yeah. Yeah. He then took the parts to nearby Stony Creek Metro Park in Shelby Township and disposed of the body parts there. But after finding out that the police intended to search the park, he recovered the torso, the torso of his wife and hid it in black plastic garbage bags in their garage. But, uh, bring it all the way home. You probably could have found somewhere else. You know, I mean, I'm glad he didn't and he's an idiot, but still. Correct. Complete idiot. After being released from the hospital, Stephen was transported to Macomb County by a convoy of Macomb County Sheriff's deputies And on March 6th, uh, Stephen was formally charged with count one homicide, murder in the first degree, which is premeditated, and with count two, disinterment and or mutilation of a dead body. The charge of count one homicide in the first degree is punishable by life in prison. The charge of disinterment, dismemberment is punishable by up to 10 years in prison, or a $5,000 fine, or both. Why <laughs> dismemberment is only punishable by, like, 10 years, or five, or 5000 I, I Maybe don't, both. I don't get that one. That 
But that threw me a loop because I was like, excuse me? It does seem That's it, Michigan? Weird. Well, yeah. does seem weird. Like the or, or $5,000? Like, does it depend on the circumstances? I mean, they may want to know why you're moving somebody Like, around. who's just randomly finding a body and being like, mm, I think I want to dismember that. Yeah. That guy over there that died in his car. Let's just dismember him. Like, you know what? He's too, he's too heavy to move. <laughs> but we got to get him out of here. So let's just chop him up into pieces first. More yawning. Oh, no. It's going to hit me. Yes. No. It does not. Yeah. Sorry. It makes my eyes water. It does not make sense at all. And on April 13th, the Macomb County prosecutor released Stephen Grant's two-part confession publicly. A transcript of the interview with detectives and his own handwritten confession. Details involved his arguing with his wife over his jealousy about her spending time with a co-worker. He also stated he had been having an affair with Verena Dierks. Remember the family's 19-year-old au pair from Germany? Ew, no! Yeah, yeah, her. Mm-hmm. And then... As the argument escalated, in a rage, Stephen strangled Tara. He also expressed his endeavors to dismember her body and hide it after he had contacted the police about her disappearance. Only he is allowed to have affairs. Damn it. Correct. And with a 19-year-old au pair. Oh, that's so gross. I kind of, I mean, you for her. But I also feel bad for her because 19 and you slept with a guy that killed and then chopped up his wife and then kept part of her in the garage. That's not something you're going to get over easily. No, not at all. Not at all. On Friday, December 21, 2007, Stephen Grant was found guilty of murder in the second degree. On Thursday, February 21, 2008. He was sentenced to a minimum of 50 years in prison. And on March 30th, 2010, Stephen Grant lost his final appeal appeal in state court, leaving the original sentence of 50 to 80 years in effect. The Michigan Supreme Court affirmed a lower court decision that found Grant's trial was not unduly prejudiced by pretrial publicity. In the widely covered case, nor was Stephen Grant improperly denied access to an attorney before making a confession to the police. In March of 2015, U.S. County Court Judge David Lawson denied Grant's petition for writ of habeas corpus. Grant had declared that the police improperly obtained his confession while he was being treated for um, hypothermia and exposure. The judge also denied, also denied that pretrial publicity made it impossible for him to receive a fail trial. Which I mean, the the pre publicity was from you, sir. Yeah, doing all your interviews. Like, yeah. what do you mean? He kind of put himself out there. Yeah. yeah. What an idiot. 
Lawson said that officials in Macomb County took extraordinary measures to ensure that a fair and impartial jury was seated. And in the aftermath, Tara's family have said that they will let her uh, two children read their father's confession after they become adults. Tara Grant's sister, Elisa Standerfer, was authorized by the court to represent Tara's estate. She filed a wrongful uh, death civil suit against, I can't even talk, sorry, against Stephen Grant. And Alicia and her husband, Eric, are raising the two young children in their Ohio home. On June 13, 2008, Stephen's father, William Allen, also known as Al Grant, committed suicide in Capac, Michigan, from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. He ended up dying at Port Huron Hospital, and a man who had a neighboring tool shop said that William Grant never seemed to recover from the actions of his son and destruction of the family. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. Al Grant had been married three times and twice widowed. He was survived by a married daughter and her husband, in addition to the two grandchildren, which is so just... I mean, if you think about it, like, could you imagine you had a business, your son takes your daughter-in-law to your business without you there, dismembers her there. Nope, that'd be so messed up. It would make me feel like even though I wasn't there, like he was using my shop and my tools. Like, had my shop and my tools not been there, what have you been able to do? Like, I get the spiral because I'm that person. I'm the overthinker. Yeah. And then just the parent guilt. Like, I raised somebody who did that. I right. can imagine that would affect, yeah, the whole family. Yeah. Poor guy. Since Stephen Grant's conviction and sentencing, at least two books have been published about the case. A Slaying in the Suburbs, The Tara Grant Murder, which was in 2009, by Andrea Billups and Steve Miller. This includes interviews with Stephen Grant that were recorded at Michigan's Bellamy Creek Correctional Facility. And Limb from Limb, also from 2009. A little gory, Yeah, interesting uh, title. Which was written by Detroit News crime reporter George Hunter, who covered the case from the beginning, and former news editor Melissa Pretty. Pretty? Pretty. Yeah. Ugh. Several TV series featured this case. Um, the biography channel had it as an episode on the Casanova killer series, which I have seen some of those. (laughs) Um, but this was in season one, episode three, the show deadly sins covered it in season five, episode five, quote unquote, Michigan Wolverines. Now, why you gotta, this is, she went to Michigan state. Don't call her a Wolverine, (laughs) sir. Rude. Spartan. <laughs> exactly. Different, big difference yeah. if you're a Michigander. Big, big difference. Wait now. Wait now. <laughs> you don't mix up those two. Yeah, definitely not. And Investigation Discovery series Scorned, Love Kills, featured the Au Pair Affair as season one, episode eight, which aired in March of 2012. And then the series Betrayed ran the episode... Beware the Au Pair in April of 2019. So, both Love Kills and Betrayed 
ran that episode. Hmm. But it was quite... Uh, I don't know. This was kind of like a short and to the point story. But it irritated me. Like, the guy had no care in the world for how this was going to affect not only him, but his children, his father, her family. He just didn't even care. And... I don't know. He wants to keep saying, you're cheating, you're cheating. Well, usually the person pointing at you is the one doing it. So. Yeah. That's, <sighs> That's all I know. <laughs> Grody. <laughs> all right. Well, today mine isn't murder related. But I'm going to talk about an event in Michigan history that was pretty interesting to read about. In the chapter, it was called The Battle of the Overpass. I don't know if you heard anything about this in school, but it was definitely new to me to read about. It was a Wednesday afternoon on May 26, 1937, when union organizers had a plan to reach employees at the Ford Rouge. I don't know why it's called that. Honestly, that's just what it was. And I went with it. Walter Ruther and members of the United Auto Workers, or UAW, planned a leaflet campaign entitled Unionism, Not Fordism, at the pedestrian overpass over Miller Road at Gate 4 of the River Rouge plant complex, where 9,000 employees were expected to cross that day as they left their 3 o'clock shift change. Two years before... Congress passed the National Labor Relations Act, which gave workers the right to collective bargaining. The UAW focused their efforts on the Ford Motor Company because of their resistance to unionization. The UAW decided all of those workers could be potential members and wanted to get their attention going so far as to rent nearby vacant buildings as headquarters. The union alerted the media to their plans and worked to gather crowds. Chief Union Organizer and President of the UAW Local 174, Richard Truman Frankenstein, Walter Ruther, and several others walked up the steps to the pedestrian overpass at around 2 p.m. that day. I, I gotta say, are we sure it's Frankenstein? Yeah. Okay. There's there's no I in there. <laughs> it's S-T-E-E-N. I was, Darn. I was really hoping. I got really excited. I know. I wanted it to be Frankenstein. <laughs> Darn. Maybe it's Frankenstein. I don't know. Frankenstein. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, all right. What was I? Photographer James E. Kilpatrick from the Detroit News started photographing when someone shouted from the crowd, you're on Ford property. Get the hell off here. <laughs> Straight to the point. Head of Ford Security Henry Bennett had gathered more than 30 of his men to ward off trouble. Before anyone could react to the shout, several men jumped on Frankenstein. Frankenstein. <laughs> I don't know how to say it now. The second one's more fun. So several men jumped on Frankenstein, pulled his coat over his head, and began to punch and kick him until he fell to the ground. Yeah. The auxiliary women were pushed and shoved. Walter Ruther said he was, quote, 
punched and kicked and dragged by my feet to the stairway, thrown down the first flight of steps, picked up, slammed down on the platform, and kicked down the second flight. Yikes. Brutal. Dearborn police did nothing. For shame. Of course, it's Dearborn. (laughs) (laughs) And it was the Ford factory. But Kilpatrick was taking pictures the entire time. When the men on the Ford side realized their actions were captured, they tried to go for the photographer. Kilpatrick was able to sprint away and got to his car. They caught up to him and surrounded his car and demanded the film. Kilpatrick opened his camera and handed over the film to them. However, unbeknownst to them, when Kilpatrick got to his car, he was able to remove the photo plates hide them in his car, and put in blank film plates. They were duped. (laughs) Duped. So the next morning, they're probably surprised when images of the bloodied Frankenstein and Ruther were front page news, and the Ford security team realized they had been tricked. It was a PR nightmare for Ford. (laughs) Which I I will say. I don't feel bad about especially because if you remember from the prohibition episode ford was pushing for prohibition because he thought it would be better for his company and profits to have a sober workforce (laughs) so whatever that's what you get ford frankenstein gave detailed accounts of what happened to him other union men also reported injuries Robert Cantor reported he was pushed off the bridge and fell 30 feet. Wow. Richard Merriweather reported he had his back broken, and others were reported as critically wounded. Jeez. Yeah. Henry Bennett issued a statement and told Time Magazine, The affair was deliberately provoked by union officials. They simply wanted to trump up a charge of Ford brutality. Didn't need help there. I know, I know definitely no Ford serviceman or plant police were involved in any way in the fight. The union men were beaten by regular Ford employees who were on their way to work. The union men called them scabs and cursed and taunted them. Okay. Now, boys, <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but you don't have to fight people just because they call you a name or that they're in your way. <laughs> Correct. (laughs) So that excuse at that time. No bueno. They they might have thought it did then, but now nowadays, thankfully, that's not the case. Absolutely not, sir. Let me speak to your manager. (laughs) Get Henry Ford on the phone. Yeah. Just oh this the union's guy's fault though that they got attacked. (laughs) Bennett's words did no good and public sympathy was with the union surprise surprise yeah (laughs) the National Labor Relations Board investigated and found Ford was in violation of the two-year-old law the National Labor Relations Act Ford Motor Company was told it had to immediately stop blocking attempts to unionize its workforce the River Rouge plant was gated, fenced, and guarded, which blocked all direct access to public streets. However, security still failed to stop what happened. In 1941, Ford signed a contract of agreement with the UAW union, and 
you know, leaving out any political view of whether unions are good or bad. I mean, I think we can all agree <laughs> that uh, throwing hands like that was in poor taste and wasn't a good look yeah. for Ford. No, not one bit. And the uh, the head, he was noted as a like head of security or head of whatever. He tried to take the blame, basically saying that it was him that did it. And Ford management, the company had nothing to do with it. But everybody was like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, goodness. I do want to say hi and give a shout out to a couple of listeners who I've found out have been listening to us lately. Um, so I want to say hello to my friend Kim, who's been avidly listening to us while she's at work. Hi, and Kim. to Melissa. Yeah. And then Melissa, a new listener, who has requested we do try something on, like, aliens, which I do say there is... An episode on Netflix about aliens in the Holland Grand Haven area that I watched one day and I've got to find it again and it like messed with me and so we might be able to do something I mean we can do a spooky October I don't see why not <laughs> yeah it's like hey she requested I talk to you and ask she's like yeah but listen <laughs> like, yeah we're doing it on the podcast recording. Yes, because I can do an episode on the dog man. And then we've got the Detroit devil. What else do we got around here? We've got a few things in October that we could kind of try to crank out. All right. There's probably some witchy things. Make us record up. more episodes. Damn it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> At least it'll be a fun, a fun October. Yeah. Versus. Michigan spooky tober. Versus, like, then they were dismembered. <laughs> and all the blood drained and put in a body uh, What was the, uh, uh, the TikTok? Her legs are cut off. Her arms are cut off. <laughs> are cut off. Her fingers are cut off. <laughs> so it's like eating popcorn. <laughs> yes. Yep. So shout out to you two, and thank you, Melissa, for the idea, because now we're going to have a fun October. Thanks, Melissa. <laughs> Though we, do, we st- I mean, our 50th episode is still supposed to be the drunk episode, yeah. so we might have to tell a spooky tale while drinking, I guess. Yes. Something really ridiculous while drunk. Yeah. Off our gourds. <laughs> <laughs> something. We'll figure something out. Yeah. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. You have a great day. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and watch out for the crazies. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. The music titled Teller of the Tales was provided by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incomtech.filmmusic.io.